welcome everyone to Understanding the I Am That Is You podcast. Hey everybody, it's your girl Wynn Ruffin, and I pray all is well with everyone tonight, and your hearts and minds are full of love, joy, and compassion for all God's children and all God's creation, and to spend time in contemplation with our mighty I Am Presence is to spend quality time with the divine presence of the living God within us. And the more quality time we spend with that divine presence, the broader our understanding of heavenly things, and the more our love strengthens to encompass all God's children and all God's creation. For that divine presence of the living God within us is love, sincere love. And the love of the living God always begets sincere love. Amen. Give thanks and praises for love and light. And y'all be loved. God willed that we should look up to heaven, and undoubtedly not without reason. For both the birds and almost all of the dumb creation see the heaven, but it is given to us in a peculiar manner to behold the heaven as we stand erect, that we may seek religion there, that since we cannot see God with our eyes, we may with our mind contemplate him, whose throne is there, and this cannot assuredly be done by him who worships brass and stone, which are earthly things. But it is most incorrect that the nature of the body, which is temporary, should be upright, but that the soul itself, which is eternal, should be abject, whereas the figure and position have no other signification, except that the mind of man ought to look in the same direction as his countenance, and that his soul ought to be as upright as his body, so that it may imitate that which it ought to rule. But men, forgetful both of their name and nature, cast down their eyes from the heaven, and fix them upon the ground, and fear the works of their own hands, as though anything could be greater than its own artificer. What madness is it, then, either to form those objects which they themselves may afterwards fear, or to fear the things which they have formed? But, they say, we do not fear the images themselves, but those beings after whose likeness they were formed, and to whose names they are dedicated. You fear them doubtless on this account, because you think that they are in heaven, for if they are gods, the case cannot be otherwise. Why, then, do you not raise your eyes to heaven, and, invoking their names, offer sacrifices in the open air? Why do you look to walls, and wood, and stone, rather than to the place where you believe them to be? What is the meaning of temples and altars? What, in short, of the images themselves, which are memorials either of the dead or absent? For the plan of making likenesses was invented by men for this reason, that it might be possible to retain the memory of those who had either been removed by death or separated by absence. In which of these classes, then, shall we reckon the gods? If among the dead, who is so foolish as to worship them? If among the absent, then they are not to be worshipped, if they neither see our actions nor hear our prayers. But if the gods cannot be absent, for, since they are divine, they see and hear all things, in whatever part of the universe they are, 
It follows that images are superfluous, since the gods are present everywhere, and it is sufficient to invoke with prayer the names of those who hear us. But if they are present, they cannot fail to be a hand at their own images. It is entirely so, as the people imagine, that the spirits of the dead wander about the tombs and relics of their bodies. But after that the deity has begun to be near, there is no longer need of his statue. For I ask, if anyone should often contemplate the likeness of a man who has settled in a foreign land, that he may thus solace himself for him who is absent, would he also appear to be of sound mind, if, when the other had returned and was present, he should persevere in contemplating the likeness, and should prefer the enjoyment of it, rather than the sight of the man himself. Assuredly not. For the likeness of a man appears to be necessary at that time when he is far away, and it will become superfluous when he is at hand. But in the case of God, whose spirit and influence are diffused everywhere, and can never be absent, it is plain that an image is always superfluous. But they fear lest their religion should be altogether vain and empty if they should see nothing present which they may adore, and therefore they set up images, and since these are representations of the dead, they resemble the dead, for they are entirely destitute of perception. But the image of the ever-living God ought to be living and endued with perception. But if it received this name from resemblance, how can it be supposed that these images resemble God, which have neither perception nor motion? Therefore, the image of God is not that which is fashioned by the fingers of men out of stone or bronze or other material, but man himself, since he has both perception and motion, and performs many and great actions. Nor do the foolish men understand, that if images could exercise perception and motion, they would of their own accord adore men, by whom they have been adorned and embellished, since they would be either rough and unpolished stone, or rude and unshapen wood, had they not been fashioned by man. Man, therefore, is to be regarded as the parent of these images, for they were produced by his instrumentality, and through him they first had shape, figure, and beauty. Therefore, he who made them is superior to the objects which were made. And yet no one looks up to the Maker himself, or reverences him, he fears the things which he has made, as though there could be more power in the work than in the workman. Seneca, therefore, rightly says in his moral treatises, they worship the images of the gods, they supplicate them with bended knee, they adore them, they sit or stand beside them through the whole day, they offer to them contributions, they slay victims, and while they value these images so highly, they despise the artificers who made them. What is so inconsistent, as to despise the statuary and to adore the statue, and not even to admit to your society him who makes your gods? What force, what power can they have, when he who made them has none? But he was unable to give to these even those powers which he had, the power of sight, of hearing, of speech and of motion. Is anyone so foolish as to suppose that there is anything in the image of a god, in which there is nothing even of a man except the mere resemblance? But no one considers these things, for men are imbued with this persuasion, and their minds have thoroughly imbibed the deception of folly. And thus, beings endowed with sense adore objects which are senseless, rational beings adore irrational objects, those who are alive adore inanimate objects, those sprung from heaven adore earthly objects. It delights me, therefore, as those standing on a lofty watchtower, from which all may hear, to proclaim aloud that saying of Perseus, O souls bent down to the earth, and destitute of heavenly things? rather look to the heaven, to the sight of which God your Creator raised you. He gave to you an elevated countenance, you bend it down to the earth, you depress to things below those lofty minds, which are raised together with their bodies to their parent, as though it repented you that you were not born quadrupeds. 
It is not befitting that the heavenly being should make himself equal to things which are earthly, and inclined to the earth. Why do you deprive yourselves of heavenly benefits, and of your own accord fall prostrate upon the ground? For you do wretchedly roll yourselves on the ground, when you seek here below that which you ought to have sought above. For as to those vain and fragile productions, the work of man's hands, from whatever kind of material they are formed, what are they but earth, out of which they were produced? Why, then, do you subject yourselves to lower objects? Why do you place the earth above your heads? For when you lower yourselves to the earth, and humiliate yourselves, you sink of your own accord to hell, and condemn yourselves to death, for nothing is lower and more humble than the earth, except death and hell. And if you wish to escape these, you would despise the earth lying beneath your feet, preserving the position of your body, which you received upright, in order that you might be able to direct your eyes and your mind to him who made it. But to despise and trample upon the earth is nothing else than to refrain from adoring images, because they are made of earth, also, not to desire riches, and to despise the pleasures of the body, because wealth, and the body itself, which we make use of as a lodging, is but earth. Worship a living being, that you may live, for he must necessarily die who has subjected himself and his soul to the dead. Anti-Nicene Fathers, Volume 7, Fathers of the 3rd and 4th Centuries, Lactantius, Chapter 5 From the earliest days of Christianity, when Paul upbraided the church of Corinth for a crime as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife, and for their making a pretext of the Lord's Supper for debauch and drunkenness, 1 Corinthians 5:1, the profession of the name of Christ has ever been more a pretext than the evidence of holy feeling. However, a correct form of this verse is, Everywhere the lewd practice among you is heard about, such a lewd practice as is nowhere among the heathen nations, even the having or marrying of the father's wife. The Persian influence would seem to be indicated in this language. The practice existed nowhere among the nations, except in Persia, where it was esteemed especially meritorious. Hence, too, the Jewish stories of Abraham marrying his sister, Nahor, his niece Amram his father's sister, and Judah his son's widow, whose children appear to have been legitimate. The Aryan tribes esteemed endogamic marriages, while the Tartars and all barbarous nations required all alliances to be exogamous. There was but one apostle of Jesus worthy of that name, and that was Paul. However disfigured were his epistles by dogmatic hands before being admitted into the canon, his conception of the great and divine figure of the philosopher who died for his idea can still be traced in his addresses to the various Gentile nations. Only, he who would understand him better yet must study the Philonian logos reflecting now and then the Hindu Sabda, logos, of the Mimansa school. As to the other apostles, those whose names are prefixed to the Gospels, we cannot well believe in their veracity when we find them attributing to their master miracles surrounded by circumstances, recorded, if not in the oldest books of India, at least in such as antedated Christianity, and in the very phraseology of the traditions who, in his days of simple and blind credulity, but marveled at the touching narrative given in the Gospels according to Mark and Luke of the resurrection of the daughter of Jairus. Who has ever doubted its originality? And yet the story is copied entirely from the Hari Purana and is recorded among the miracles attributed to Krishna. We translate it from the French version. The king Angashuna caused the betrothal of his daughter, the beautiful Kalavati, 
with a young son of Vamadeva, the powerful king of Antarvati, named Govinda, to be celebrated with great pomp. But as Kalavati was amusing herself in the groves with her companions, she was stung by a serpent and died. Angashuna tore his clothes, covered himself with ashes, and cursed the day when he was born. Suddenly, a great rumor spread through the palace, and the following cries were heard, a thousand times repeated, Pesaya Pitaram, Pesaya Guram. The father, the master? Then Krishna approached, smiling, leaning on the arm of Arjuna, master, cried Angashuna, casting himself at his feet and sprinkling them with his tears, see my poor daughter, and he showed him the body of Kalavati, stretched upon a mat. Why do you weep, replied Krishna, in a gentle voice. Do you not see that she is sleeping? Listen to the sound of her breathing, like the sigh of the night wind which rustles the leaves of the trees. See her cheeks resuming their color, her eyes, whose lids tremble as if they were about to open, her lips quiver as if about to speak. She is sleeping, I tell you, and hold, see, she moves, Kalavati. Rise and walk. Hardly had Krishna spoken, when the breathing, warmth, movement, and life returned little by little, into the corpse, and the young girl, obeying the injunction of the demigod, rose from her couch and rejoined her companions. But the crowd marveled and cried out, This is a god, since death is no more for him than sleep. All such parables are enforced upon Christians, with the addition of dogmas which, in their extraordinary character, leave far behind them the wildest conceptions of heathenism. The Christians, in order to believe in a deity, have found it necessary to kill their god, that they themselves should live. H.P. Blavatsky And now, the Supreme, Unknown One, the Father of Grace and Mercy, and His Celestial Hierarchy are managed by the Church as though they were so many theatrical stars and supernumeraries under salary. Six centuries before the Christian era, Xenophanes had disposed of such anthropomorphism by an immortal satire, recorded and preserved by Clement of Alexandria. There is one God supreme, whose form is not like unto man's, and is unlike his nature, but vain mortals imagine that gods like themselves are begotten with human sensations and voice and corporeal members, so if oxen or lions had hands and could work in man's fashion, and trace out with chisel or brush their conception of Godhead, then would horses depict gods like horses, and oxen like oxen, each kind the divine with its own form and nature endowing. And here Vyasa, the poet pantheist of India, who, for all the scientists can prove, may have lived, as Jacolio has it, some 15,000 years ago, discoursing on Maya, the illusions of the senses, all religious dogmas only serve to obscure the intelligence of man, worship of divinities, under the allegories of which, is hidden respect for natural laws, drives away truth to the profit of the basest superstitions, Vyasa Maya. It was given to Christianity to paint us God Almighty after the model of the Kabbalistic abstraction of the Ancient of Days. From old frescoes on cathedral ceilings, Catholic missals, and other icons and images, we now find him depicted by the poetic brush of Gustave Doré. The awful, unknown majesty of him, whom no heathen dared to reproduce in concrete form, is figuring in our own century in Doré's illustrated Bible. Treading upon clouds that float in midair, darkness and chaos behind him and the world beneath his feet, a majestic old man stands, his left hand gathering his flowing robes about him, and his right hand raised in the gesture of command. He has spoken the word, and from his towering person streams an effulgence of light, the Shekinah. As a poetic conception, the composition does honor to the artist, but does it honor God? Better, the chaos behind him, than the figure itself, for there, 
At least, we have a solemn mystery. For our part, we prefer the silence of the ancient heathens. With such a gross, anthropomorphic, and, as we conceive, blasphemous representation of the first cause, who can feel surprised at any iconographic extravagance in the representation of the Christian Christ, the Apostle, and the putative saints? With the Catholics, St. Peter becomes quite naturally the janitor of heaven and sits at the door of the celestial kingdom, a ticket-taker to the Trinity. In a religious disturbance which recently occurred in one of the Spanish-American provinces, there were found upon the bodies of some of the killed, passports signed by the bishop of the diocese and addressed to St. Peter, bidding him admit the bearer as a true son of the church. It was subsequently ascertained that these unique documents were issued by the Catholic prelate just before his deluded parishioners went into the fight at the instigation of their priests. H.P. Blavatsky The I Am Discourses, Volume 16 Beloved of the light, as we enter into the release of more of the all-controlling power of the great angelic host into the lower physical atmosphere of earth, we want you to become aware of how that is accomplished as much as possible, and to keep in your outer consciousness the memory of the fact that we are drawing uncountable, limitless legions of the angels of the sacred fire from the higher realms of this system of worlds into the physical atmosphere of earth, in order to guard that which is constructive as much as possible, and as much as mankind will permit by cooperation with us. Every constructive thing on this earth that is protected and sustained is protected and sustained by the sacred fire love. And the angels of that sacred fire love that come under my direction have power without limit to concentrate into all physical conditions whatever sacred fire purity is enough to protect what is constructive, and to repel or dissolve that which is not constructive. Therefore, everything that is constructive in this world is dependent upon the sacred fire love of the mighty I am presence, the ascended masters, and the angelic host, to be sustained and protected by the immortality of the universe, because the sacred fire love is the only immortal activity of life. And that is flowing constantly from the great central sun, through the physical sun, and down into the physical structure of earth. If that sacred fire love were withdrawn from the substance of the planet or the powers of nature and forces of the elements, everything would return to the universal. The same thing is true in your own individual affairs, Unless there is the conscious command of the mighty I am presence through the free will of the individual for manifestation of that which fulfills the divine plan to come into existence, it doesn't come otherwise. If the ascended masters didn't use the free will and consciously command substance to be concentrated and set into action to produce certain manifestation, manifestation could not be. But when manifestation has been allowed to come into outer existence, and the angelic host have been the ones who have drawn the sacred fire love that is the magnet to draw energy and substance and consciousness into manifestation, the sustaining power of everything that is constructive is that sacred fire love. Without that you do not have sustained constructive action. Therefore, everything in your world that is constructive in your modern civilization, everything you use, everything that blesses you, Everything that is the constructive activity carried over from one civilization to another, is always sustained by that sacred fire love of the great angelic host. Now we want you to understand this for many reasons, because in dealing with conditions of the outer world when mankind is using the command of the spoken word, using the free will, to deliberately create destruction, then you must have a protecting power that is sustained and forever expanding. Therefore, 
we have asked you to call to the angelic host, the angels of sacred fire protection, and the angels of sacred fire control of physical manifestation. These come under my direction, and the direction of all ascended masters and cosmic beings. You can have them without limit. But it takes your own conscious command and in your own free will, your choice, to ask that sacred fire love come into existence in the outer world to manifest or protect that which is constructive, that mankind may have the use of it so the divine plan can be fulfilled. Through the fulfilling of that divine plan, then mankind is raised into the greater and greater concentration of that sacred fire, until the ascension takes place. Beloved Archangel Michael, 